All right, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to SaberSims DFS Office Hours. It is Monday, August 15th of 2022. Thank you for tuning into the stream here with me today. Hope everybody had a great weekend. I had a pretty good weekend overall. It was one of those weekends that just feels longer than it's supposed to, where you, you get to the end of that and you're like, man, it feels like that was almost just even like a short little vacation. So uh, feeling refreshed, feeling ready here today. Uh, didn't play any DFS yesterday either. So uh, very ready to get back into the MLB DFS streets here tonight. 10 game slate on tap tonight with what looks to be uh, pretty mispriced Garrett Cole. So should be an interesting one here. But uh, we'll go ahead and start diving in here in just a moment. We have a few questions today in our queue about uh, the different fill methods, filling our entries using the entry editor. Uh, a couple questions about how to know whether you are doing too much uh, in SaberSim and uh, how that changes, whether or not you're looking pre or post build. Um, a handful of questions as well about pool size, the DFS profit plan, uh, stacking in baseball. So uh, a wide variety of things to talk about here, and we'll, we'll get into this in just a moment. But uh, before we really jump in, as always, if you have questions, fire away at me. Live chat in YouTube works just fine. So does the Office Hours channel in Slack. Uh, both will work just fine there. Uh, if you watch or listen to the recording of the show as well, uh, you are welcome to email us, support at sabersim.com, and get your questions answered there. But let's go ahead here and start diving in. We have a, a handful of questions from Sarosh via email here, so we'll start there. And uh, first question says, filling entries. Is there any backtesting data that supports one that offers any specific advantages when filling by unique random versus rank, et cetera? What does unique random actually mean? Randomly chosen uh, from your lineup pool and not duplicated. Yeah, let's talk about this here real quick. So uh, what we'll do, I will get an entries file loaded in tonight here. And I have 150 entries spread out in, uh, in true DFS profit plan fashion uh, across my different diversifiers and my elevator contests. Uh, we'll get a quick pool of 150 lineups put together here, and then we'll talk about the different fill methods. So um, while this uh, is building here, um, I'll mention that, you know, this isn't, there's not really a best fill method. Um, see a weird message on my, on my camera here. I hope we're okay. I think we're all right. Should be okay. We've been having some camera issues lately, unfortunately here. So uh, we'll keep an eye out on the camera. Um, I might need to do a little bit of troubleshooting and see what's going on here. I'm, I'm not really sure why we've been having issues, but anyway, um, what was I saying? There's not a best fill method here. Um, there's not one that's better than the other. It's not something that's really like back testable. Um, there's basically, there's, there's just differences in what each of them do. And it kind of depends on how, risk averse or risk tolerant you are and how much also that you want to leave up to saber score basically how much you want to uh, value saber score in the process for your lineup so if we click fill entries let's talk about what each of these do first um and i actually we, we default to rank and i actually think um defaulting to uh unique random here is actually kind of the better way to think about it. And maybe we'll do that in the future, but I do kind of think unique random is <clears throat> like the basic, the, the baseline option here. And what unique random does is it will take a random lineup from your entire lineup set here. So Sarosh, your first question here, it is from your lineup set of 150, not your entire pool of 500, but it is your set of 150 in this case. Uh, and it will randomly assign a lineup into each entry. So 
Lineup 149 could be in this contest. Lineup a random set of 100 will be in the mini max. A uh, random set of you know 20 will be in this contest, and so on. Right? That's kind of the basic one. And what's nice about unique random is that it is basically the most risk averse option. It's going to be the most diversified, and it it would be actually my recommendation for for any player to start here. I think it's the best starting point option. I think it's the best place to begin with your with your uh, your entry set, right? For that reason, it's going to diversify you. It's not going to be overly, you're still playing your best 150, but you're not really being overly opinionated about what goes where. Now, one step up from that or, or one kind of difference from there would be the unique rank, right? What unique rank does is it's going to still put a unique lineup into every single entry, but it's going to do it in the order that these contests are sorted by say by the order that your lineups are sorted over here, right? So right now I'm sorted by Saber score, highest to lowest. So if I fill entries, right? A common way of using this would be using the unique rank and then sorting by like buy-in, top to bottom. If I did something like this, best overall lineup, number one Saber score goes into this contest. Then the next best lineup goes into this one. Then the next three go into this one. Then the next one goes into this one. Then the next 20 and so on from there, right? That is the way that our unique rank sorting would go. So you're still diversifying, right? But you are going to put more financial equity, in this case, sorting by buy-in, into your highest Sabre score lineups. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Your higher Sabre score lineups are theoretically going to be your highest expected value lineups, especially over the very long term. That's not necessarily true on a micro level on any given slate, but over the long term, that's that's generally true. Uh, but your top overall lineups may not be necessarily as diversified as your entire pool. You may emphasize a stronger concentration of players amongst these top lineups than across the bottom lineups in the pool. And you can actually just see this, for example, if we look and say Jordan Alvarez is owned in 33% of our lineups in our total set of 150, but in our top 10, he is. Well, that's a bad example because it is actually very close. Here's a better example. Adley Rutschman shows up in 60% of our top 10 lineups, uh, but in our top 150, he is only in 17%, right? So we're going to overemphasize Adley Rutschman in our high and probably Oriole stacks in general in our higher dollar contests um, compared to what would happen if we just random, uniquely, uniquely randomly sorted them. The rank fill method is going to put your top overall Sabre scored lineups in every contest and not worry about duplication. So if we did rank fill, all of our single entries would get the exact same lineups. They would get the exact same number one lineup. Our three maxes would get that exact same number one lineup plus the next best two. Our 20 maxes would get those same three lineups plus the next best 17. And I only have 100 entries here on the mini max, but if I had 150, they would get those same 20 plus the next best 130. This is basically really doubling down on Sabre score. You're basically saying, I want my number one lineup to go into everything. I want to make sure I have that lineup everywhere. And you're saying Sabre score or however you end up choosing your number one lineup here, you want to get as much action down on that lineup as possible, right? So that in that case, you are going to be more risk tolerant, right? You're, you're basically chasing upside. You're basically saying, I want to maximize whatever EV edge I get from higher Sabre score lineups. So ultimately, I would recommend probably sticking to the unique fill methods because I think it's going to give you, it's going to get you more lineups in play, which based on our um, contest selection 
DFS profit plan is the optimal way to select and, and fill your contests. Uh, it's also going to spread out your risk. You're going to have as many opportunities to get a high scoring lineup as possible. So, um, but again, that's not something that would ever really make sense to backtest for us because the value of these, the value of different fill methods is not necessarily in terms of ROI. Right. It's it's you know, you have one that allows you to diversify a little bit more, one that allows you to chase a little bit more upside at the expense of diversification. And it kind of depends on the individual player tolerance of what you prefer there. So. But good question. And uh, let's keep it going. Let me real quick here. OK, cool. Um. Another question here. Patrick said I need to go back to the old school Polaroid. Yeah, I think so. I think what happened here um, is I turned the camera, I turned a setting on on the camera um, to to basically help like auto adjust it a little bit better. And I think since this stream is just so long and it's just on the entire time, I think it's causing it to, to overheat or something. So we'll, we'll figure that out. Hopefully we can get through and see what happens here. But um, okay, are you serious? Okay, uh, YouTube. Oh, there we go. Okay, it says YouTube rejected my comment. I'm I'm the host, YouTube. My comment is valid. Uh, this is the second question here today. Uh, when am I tinkering too much, altering player exposures, team exposures, and stacks, meaning taking the pure Saberson build and then just messing it up, or is that even possible pre and post build? Yeah, so good question. Uh, I think it is much safer to make adjustments in the post build process because those lineups are basically already made unopinionated with your tinkering, right? You're basically saying default settings, default projections, all of this other stuff. Um, build me, build me the best, build me a set of 500 viable lineups, and then sort it right. And when you come in here and you say, you know, I want to take a stand and I don't want to play Houston, right? You are sorting through a pool of lineups that was built unopinionated about that stance where Houston was represented accordingly. And if you sort through it and say, in my 150, I don't want to play any Houston. You can, you can kind of almost check your work and ask SaberSim, hey, of the best 500 lineups you can build for this particular contest, is it viable to fully fade Houston? And what SaberSim is telling you is yes. Maybe you want to come over here and say, okay, I want to fully fade Houston and I want to fade Garrett Cole. And we can see, does it work? No, it's saying not within the first 500 lineups. And I think with this way of thinking, you can kind of set up guardrails of, how much is too much very easily for you? Uh, one thing is I would probably here have built, if I was actually building this for real, if I was actually building 150 lineups, I would do this with a pool of 1500 lineups instead of 500. So I would probably increase pool size, but you can really conveniently here, just go ahead and basically say, Saberson, build me a good pool of 1500 lineups. Let me see what's in there. Let me make adjustments. And the moment you see, hey, there are not lineups in your pool of 1500 that match what you're trying to do. That's a good signal, I think, that you may have done too much. Or at least at that point, you're going to have to go to the pre-build. You're going to have to go back to the projections and make adjustments there to get what you want. Now, how much is too much in the projections tab, right? Or what should you be doing in the projections tab? Now, it's perfectly fine to make adjustments here as well, right? That's, that's why you can. These adjustments will change the inputs to the system, right? So your adjustments that you make before the build are going to be more impactful than what you make after the build, right? Because they're they're changing the inputs. You're not just filtering and sorting the inputs. So what, what adjustments are appropriate? Well, I would say 
if you have a stance that you know you're taking no matter what, you might as well just tell us beforehand, right? Like if you have decided that you are fading Garrett Cole and you don't care how it fits in or what the slate looks like or, or anything else, and you just have made that decision, and maybe you're fading, oh, or maybe you're fading Astros too, right? Let's let's be consistent here. Like if you've decided you are doing that no matter what, if you do that here, now it's risky, of course. It may be doing too much, but you should tell us that ahead of the time so we can put that so we can build you a better pool of lineups that allows you to tackle what you're actually trying to do on the slate. Now, if you're trying to figure out how much is just too much, like where's an appropriate amount of where's an appropriate amount of things that I should adjust, I like to think about editing things in terms of 10% buckets, right? So maybe you want to see, hey, I really kind of want to see, can I get away with a Garrett Cole fade on today's slate, right? This ownership projection is crazy, 91%. I don't think that's actually what we're going to get, but I do think he's going to be very highly owned. Maybe one thing that we can do instead is adjust his projection down 10% or so. So maybe we take this down to, you know, let's say 24 and a half, right? That's about 10%. And what we're really doing here now is we're saying if Garrett Cole's true average projection is 10% less than what we projected, now let's see how much we get of him. And what's nice about this is I think it's, it's, it lets you stay about in line with what the model gives you, right? It's it's lets lets you stay about in line with where the sims are by default while still making adjustments without going kind of overboard. In other words, we're saying what if Garrett Cole's projection was 90% of what we actually projected, which is probably within the realm of reasonable error here, how much would we still get? And that gives you a better opportunity to kind of check your work here. So um what I would do, um is personally, I would say on when you're editing, when you're when you're making adjustments, I would try to make adjustments in the post build process first, right? Post build process, you're going to basically let Saberson build unopinionated lineups, and you can stress test the builder and see what's viable, what works here. If that, if you are not able to do what you think you want to do on that particular slate, one, that's an opportunity to check your work. Two, it's an opportunity to go back to step one, to the projections tab and make some adjustments there. And from there, I would start with 10% adjustments max. And you're basically saying, if this projection is off by 10% or less, now how viable it is. And we see even, this is a this is a good like case study. Even if Derek Cole's projection, his true projection is 90% of what we project for him, you're still going over the field on him. You're still getting 97% exposure in your top 150. And in fact, let's see how much we're getting in our larger pool. 60, 55% of the lineups in the pool still have Garrett Cole. Now though, you may find that a Garrett Cole fade is actually more viable here. And now you could actually maybe even potentially do both of these things if you wanted to, right? And you can kind of start to frame these things in your mind in terms of probability. So in this case, we can't, but um, let's just remove the, let's just remove the, um, the Houston thing I just did, right? So now we can we can like kind of frame these things and basically say fading Garrett Cole becomes somewhat viable provided his his true projection is 90% of the way we projected him. Now you can't get away with fading both him and Astros, right? But we didn't we also didn't adjust the Astros projection. So we could come over here then and say if we adjust Garrett Cole's projection to 90% of what his actual outcome is and also change the Astros team total down for team totals, 10 percentages get a little bit weird. So I like to think about it in, in terms of half runs. So if we say, if the 
Astros true team total is a half run less than what we project. Plus Garrett Cole's projection is 90% of what we project. Then how viable is a fade in a 150 max tournament? And this way, I think you can start to kind of think about how things fit together. So cool. Let me know if that helps on that particular question, Sarosh. Um, there were a couple other follow-up questions from that as well. So I'm going to hit these real quick too. And then uh, I see some questions already coming in in YouTube chat. So we'll get to those here shortly. Let me go ahead and get this next question in here. Um, is it better to change stacking exposures after the build or before some days on large slates of 12 or more teams? I've noticed I get a high percentage of builds. Uh, I don't touch sliders at all with 332, 222, 422, et cetera. Yeah. So kind of same deal here, right? We're going to build you based on what we found is the optimal amount of correlation and sim precision and other things like that, an appropriate amount of each stack, basically, right? And you can see here, that's going to be heavily featured on like a 10-game slate like tonight. That's going to be here. Let's actually, let's adjust this to like the top 20 lineups because then we'll let Sabre score have a little bit more value here. Um, okay, like that's still, that's heavily featured towards 5-2, 4-3, five, 5 stacks, 5 threes, right? But we do see some smaller stacks start to creep in here a little bit as well, right? 3-3-2s, three, three right? where, you know, you're still getting some correlation in there, 3-3s three, with two one-offs, right? But not, not perfectly stack sized up, right? You can look, if you look at the pool, the overall large pool, you'll kind of see a similar story. On a 10-game slate, what are the best two stacks to play? 4-3, 5-2, 4-2. For me, I typically don't set a lot of stacking rules ahead of time, right? I kind of like to see this information and see where particular opportunities are to play different stacks and, and you know, on a different size slate, how I can vary. If you are, so there's nothing wrong with just building this without a stacking rule and making adjustments from there, right? That's what I do most of the time. I think you can come in here and say, I get what Saberson's saying, but in my 20 lineups, I don't want to play a 3-3-2 or a 3-3, right? and just eliminate them from here. There's nothing wrong with that, right? That's that's part of the reason this is here. Now, if you know ahead of time that you are going to do that 100% of the time, there is no situation ever that you play this slate tonight and you play anything smaller than a four stack, then I would tell us ahead of time for the same reason I said before, right? If you know that that's true, let us build you a better pool that tackles what you are trying to accomplish here. So. um, Cool. Let's see here. And let's keep it going. Um, and then, okay, yeah. So there was one other follow-up question here uh, from Sarosh as well. And it said, if I change that build to force five stacks, will it have some sort of a negative effect or does it matter? It doesn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about it as having a negative effect coming in here and setting a stacking rule, right? At least because that's directionally correct. Now you can mess this up, right? If you came in here and said no more than three players per team, right? I don't think that would be a very good idea. But since this is like directionally correct, that I think adding correlation is generally a good thing. All this is going to do is that's going to say that every time we select Sims for a given game, for a given lineup, we're going to make sure that that lineup gets constructed with five players from the same team. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. All right. Cool. Let's keep it going. I'm going to hop over to YouTube chat real quick and hit the YouTube questions here. Um... Patrick said my thoughts on Camp Smith being assessed a two-stroke penalty. Uh, I don't. I didn't even know that it happened, to be honest. I was way over the field on Rory and, and Scotty and basically like ignored golf after they both missed the cut. So, uh, 
It was uh, it was a tilting golf slate for me. I mostly ignored it. Eric said, first time watching the show. Good stuff. Thoughts on Coors Field this year? I just can't seem to figure out my projections there correctly. Yeah, you know, I I would say that like this is just my personal take. How I've been kind of rolling with this year. I've been I've been mostly about even with the field on Coors this year. Um, I find that that's kind of my uh, in terms of even matching ownership on the on my stacks and individual players. I've found that especially this year when there's situations that I don't know how I want to project it or how I don't, I don't know if I, how I want to strategically attack the slate. I will just try to let that, that situation be a net neutral on my lineups. Um, and I feel like matching the field on ownership is a decent way to accomplish that where, you know, I, my average lineup is going to succeed as much as the field's average lineup for that particular angle uh, and find an opportunity to get edges elsewhere. So it's, it's tough. I don't. I don't know if I found like a one size fits all solution there. I think there's core slates where I found that the field is a little bit overrating the game, uh, just as much as the field is underrating the game. Um, I actually strangely feel like I feel like this year more than ever. I've noticed that it, it seems like on the slates where there is, you know, the Dodger slates we had a couple uh, weeks ago or maybe a month ago, where we have a Dodgers with like a seven point eight implied run total. Uh, I was surprised that people were not higher on the Dodgers, and I know like. Trey Turner and Freddie Freeman were like 40% owned, but there were guys closer to the back of the order that were 15, 16, 17, 18, 20% owned. And there was no other team on the slate that even had like a 5.5 implied run total. Um, I have strangely, and this is counter to how it's been in the past for me, I've found that in this year in particular, I feel like people are underweighting, undervaluing the good teams in Coors Field and actually overrating bad teams playing in Coors Field. Like the Coors effect is taking too much of a impact. This is just anecdotally what it feels like to me here. Um, the Coors impact is taking too much of an effect on people's projections and they're ignoring the value of the team playing there. So very general trend. Most slates, I would say that I'm just trying to play neutrally around Coors. Uh, but with that said, it seems like people are undervaluing the good quality teams that I've noticed when I've been playing my slates. So Cool. Ryan said, good to have Counter-Strike back. Yeah, I bet Will is happy as well. Uh, Patrick said, Sunday baseball slates are the weirdest. Dodgers getting shut out. Uh, Wacho was mowing down the Yankees. Almost had a perfect game yesterday. Mateo was the most hated man in Tampa Bay. Yeah. Yeah, I skipped I skipped the slate yesterday. I had some company over. I was taking it easy. But uh, I was catching up, and it, it seemed like seemed like a good one. So... Uh, Clint said, Jordan, been away during baseball season. Looks like Jim's, things have changed in Saberson. Will you guys do an overview recap of the changes for us coming back to football? That's not a bad idea. Um, we do have a lot of football content coming out, and there'll be you know football videos talking about how to use Saberson to be successful in your football lineups. And I think just the 2022 versions of those videos will help provide a lot of that recap and a lot of that overview of what has changed. Um, not a bad idea to... to um, to do kind of an overview recap video though, of some of the, the changes we do have one other kind of big feature that we are hoping to get out very early in football season as well, that will overhaul the way that rules are made in SaberSim, stacking rules and grouping rules and things like that. So uh, maybe after that comes out, I could see us doing a video like that. So, but also if you have any questions for me, uh, about anything that you're seeing that is different, you know, playing a, a handful of baseball slates before football gets ramped up, I think is a great way to uh, get back in the swing of things here. So, 
All right. Cool. Let me jump back over to Slack here and hit some of these questions that have come in in Slack real quickly here. Backing up to a couple that came in over the weekend here. Uh, first one from Rogue. And this is an interesting one. Any explanation on why two builds with identical settings apart from the lineup pool size, 500 versus 1500, that the smaller pool is consistently producing higher scoring lineups? Uh, I've tried this multiple times across multiple settings too, like 555, 857, 864, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it depends, I think, on how you're defining higher scoring lineups. Um, I, it's hard for me to necessarily ex exactly answer why this would be. I mean, if you're looking at like the average scoring lineups across the entire pool, I think it does make sense, assuming that the builder can find good lineups more readily, the less lineups that have been made, right? Uh it would make sense that a smaller pool might have a higher average score, at least up to a certain point, right? Like if you're saying, you know, the, I think it's fair to say that on average, the first 50 lineups you might make might be a higher average scoring than the next 50 lineups you might make, just because you can only make every lineup once and a given lineup being made in that first set takes it out of contention to be in that second set, if that makes sense. Uh, the larger your pool gets, I think the, the higher the probability that any given lineup in that pool is the highest scoring um, would be higher, right? Because there's more lineups in the pool. But I think it really kind of depends on what you are, how you are calculating this. So um, I don't know. Let me know a little bit more about like what you're, I guess what you're calculating here. Um, but I, I also would say, you know, if you're actually doing this from an actual score standpoint, you know, this is something that is going to be super noisy unless you have a huge sample size here, right? If you've done this even for just like the past like two weeks or a month of slates, it's, it's probably still going to be pretty noisy. Um, but I would say if you're calculating an average score, maybe even an average actual score, but definitely an average projected score, I think it would make sense that there's going to be a higher average projected score the smaller your pool size is. So happy to come back to that. Let me know. Um, and then a couple questions from Ian here. Uh, a question about the profit plan, which I'm following. I, have, I haven't a massive bankroll, so I know in the videos you mentioned not to play the 10 cent contest as the reward isn't the best. Uh, would you max a 20 max... Would you max a 20 max in the 10 cent or try to, or put eight lineups in the 25 cent uh, question two, would you play every slate you possibly can, or just play one a day? Thanks in advance. Yeah. So um, I mentioned in the DFS profit plan that, that the, the plan kind of starts with the quarter jukebox, right? That's kind of like the first diversifier contest that we recommend you playing. Um, I think, you know, part of the reason for that is that's where our analysis began, right? There isn't a lot of reward in playing the dime times. There's also just a lot of people, the same people are entering every dime time to get as much action down as they can under the $3 threshold. Uh, and I just don't think those are the best contests to play. Um, you know, really, I would say what I would probably recommend, I think the very, the lowest amount of money that you can really play while kind of still following the DFS profit plan is about $6 a slate, which would be playing the quarter jukebox for $5 and playing $1 into the $1 daily dollar, right? Um, that if you're playing 5% of your bankroll, a night is what? $300. Is that right? Let's see. I think so. Right. Um, yeah. Oh no, I'm dumb. That's $120. 
Don't do math on stream, guys. Um, so you need $120 to kind of justify that. I think that's probably the baseline of where I would start with the DFS profit plan. If you don't have that, frankly, I would probably try to save up a little bit of extra money, put aside like a weekly or monthly until you do. Um, I think grinding a bankroll up from those dime times as your only diversifying contest is going to be pretty hard. Um, I think that's kind of the bare minimum of where I would start. And I would recommend probably sticking just to a single slate, just playing the main slate every night until you get a much, much bigger role and can justify spreading out a little bit more. So, but good question there. And that's, I mean, you're still going to, you know, doing that, you'll get 21 unique lineups and play every night. You'll have some legitimate upside. If you take either of those contests down, you'll win a few hundred dollars uh, and you'll be on the road to, to building up. So. Um, and then carry out Cole had a question for me as well. On the teams tab in MLB, is that hitters only, or does that number include pitchers? Uh, it is hitters only your stacks tab or not your stacks tab. Your team stacks tab is what it used to be called. We shortened it to just the teams tab, um, for, for clarity here or not clarity, but I guess, uh, consistency. Maybe this does not include pitchers. This is only hitting, hitting stacks. So, um, on, yeah, yes, that's true. All right. Okay. Let me see. There's a, a question from troubles here as well. Let me go ahead and touch on this here real quick. Uh, is there a way to select specific positions for the captain for League of Legends, stay, say support, for example, besides unchecking all of the other captain options or filtering out entire teams? Uh, trying to set captain to be within a few specific potential captains, but somewhat agnostic to the rest of the fill. Uh, and trying to use Sabres optimization for the rest, but haven't run into a few problems. Um, let's jump over here. Let's see. I think there's a variety to do this here. There's a variety of ways to do this. Um, besides unchecking all the captain options, I mean, I feel like that's just your best way to do it, to be honest, right? I, I know that's not, I know that's a little bit time consuming, but like assuming, you know, a, a common thing that I, I've done, like when I've played league here is I'll just say, you know, I only want ADs and mids as captain, right? I mean, I know this is a little tedious here, um, but you know, just going through and checking everybody that fits AD and mid for each team. I mean, you could even do it team by team and that might actually be easier at least as a way to double check. So basically we're just limiting the pool and I think that should be pretty much every, everybody. Oh, there's a mid well, zero projection, right? So yeah, there we go. Right. So now because we've, we've limited our player pool to only include these players, Right. And I realize I had the view here that's a little bit hard to see. So um, hopefully that's a little bit better. Right. But we just remove, you know, these guys. And if we do this pre build, you shouldn't run into any issues with exposure settings. Right. Now, if we go in to actually build our lineups, you know, let's, I don't even know if there are a lot of 150 maxes for league. Now, if we do 20, right, we should be okay. Um, I, I think that's the easiest way to do it. So I, I, I'm curious, you know, I know you, I know you literally said besides unchecking all the other captain options, I think unchecking the other captain options is, is simply the easiest way to do it. Um, it's a little bit tedious, I know, but uh, not too bad. Right. 
and now we only have mids and ADs as captain. I think that's going to be your best bet, Troubles. If I'm misunderstanding you here or there's something I'm not thinking about, let me know. Um, but I think that's your best bet. And as, if you do that ahead of the build beforehand, you should not run into any exposure issues post-build. So. Cool. Uh, Ramsey said, but if I choose pitchers as an option in the stack, that should show up in the team stack. Um, okay. I assume you're talking about the stacking rules here, right? Uh, I, I don't think it actually does. So the, the, the pitching, the, the correlation of a pitcher to the same team batters is pretty, pretty low, right? There's, there's not... There's that win bonus, right? That's basically the only way that you're really going to get there. And it's a pretty minor impact, right? These correlations are not super high, especially compared to same team batter correlations, right? It's pretty minor. So I think even if you, well, actually I know, even if you set a stacking rule here and say at least five players from the team and then manually include the pitcher here, that does still, that does not change the way that the team stacks are calculated here in the post build. So basically if you came over here, We'll let this load for a second. Here's a good example. If you came over here and looked at your two stacks and you see, you know, New York two stack, that is never going to be Garrett Cole plus a batter. That is always going to be two actual batters, right? So, and I think, I think that's just to mostly avoid confusion. I think in general, conventionally, people assume that their pitchers are not necessarily included along with those stacks. So um, now for something like a quarterback, Right, it'll be listed differently for football. Quarterback, very strong correlation to the to this wide receiver. So in that case, in fact, the way we we actually we display this completely differently. Well, not completely differently, but we would we display this differently for football and typically say like QB plus two or something like that instead of two stacks, three stacks, four stacks, and five stacks. But you get the point. So okay, let me back up, get caught up here again. Eric said the DraftKings MLB World Championship would be a repeat of this weekend. D-backs at Coors. Yeah, the, the, the live finals are weird because you also end up having that like bit of a metagame coming into play where it's like, what is this field going to do in the field size of like 100 or whatever it's going to be? Um, I I don't know. I It's it's tough. I, I, st I feel like my gut is telling me that that field might... It depends on the slate, right? Obviously, I don't know what the slate's going to look like, but that that field might over fade Coors. Like it is the easiest low hanging fruit of like fading. And I think the conventional wisdom on contests of that size are, you know, just make, just pivot off somewhere, right? Do one thing different. And I think it's so easy. I think it's going to be so easy for a lot of people to say, hey, my pivot, my thing that I'm not going to do is fade Coors or is play Coors, right? The thing I'm not going to do is play Coors and then, and then fade there. And you might even end up with, efficient ownership uh, on the highest overall efficient or inefficiently underowned ownership for the, a contest of that size on the, the, the smallest game or the, the highest run total game on the slate. So I don't know. It's tough, um, but we'll see. It, it also, I think it also depends a lot on what pitchers are out there as well. Pitchers end up being an in interesting wrinkle. So Uh, 
Uh, Eamon said, what's up, Air Jordan? When will the new plan be revealed? So we're still building features for it, basically, is the short answer. Um, so I don't have an ETA on that. Uh, once those are done, we'll start talking about what the release looks like. But we're, we're basically still building it. So Don says, for a 20-game MLB slate, I assume that's a mistake. Two-game MLB slate? I don't know of any 20-game MLB slates. I'll assume you're talking about a two-game MLB slate. Is there an optimum size for number? Or maybe you're talking about 10, because it is a 10-game slate tonight. Anyway, is there an optimum size for number of selections instead of the 500? Uh, I guess it doesn't really matter what size the slate is. I would say 500 is good for most. Well, actually, let me say this. If you're playing 50 or more unique lineups, I typically start to increase this personally. I like to know that this number is at least 10x this number. In other words, I like knowing that for every lineup that I'm actually going to take with me into my contest, I built it 10 times and then picked the best of that set of 10 based on the angle I want to play, right? So if I'm playing 150, I'll put this up to 1500. That's just me personally. Uh, if I'm playing basically, you know, if I'm playing, I, I pretty much always leave the minimum here of 500. So if I'm playing 20, I'll, I'll still do 500. But if it's 75, you know, 750, something like that. That's just a general rule of thumb. That's just for me too, personally. Um, that's kind of the, the minimum I like to work with. Ultimately, it really depends on how much time do you have. More lineups takes more time. And two, how many adjustments in the, in the post-build screen do you end up making? right? I, uh, I make a lot of adjustments. So I typically like to have a pretty big pool. So Don says he meant to two game slate. Thanks for the correction. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it impacts the slates. I don't think slate size has a huge impact there. So. All right, let's see. Um, okay. Back to, uh, troubles question here. Um, and it says, I think I might have been unchecking within the build, and that may explain why no issues with the specific positions on that build while I was running into a few. Yeah. Okay. So that, and that's, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right. And that's the perfect example of where if you know you have a stance to take on the slate, you know that you only want these captains, tell us before the build, or I don't want to say tell us, don't tell me, tell the, tell your app, tell SaberSim that you want that before the build, and you'll get a more receptive and flexible and adaptable build and pool to work with after the build. So good question. Cool. Any other questions here for me today? I think we are all caught up. I don't see anything else here at the moment. Um, I'll wait a, a moment here for any other questions that anybody else has to come in. Um, in the meantime, pull the slate up here again. I think this is an interesting one here tonight that we've got in front of us. This Garrett Cole situation is, is pretty unique, it really underpriced, right? Just grossly underpriced. I mean, you can look around the industry. I think this number is too high. I will say that, but I don't think this is too high. I think there's, I mean, I was looking around and I think there's a lot of uh, people out there that are even higher on Cole than us. And he is priced like he and Otani are equivalents. Um, or, you know, even that he and like Julio Arias is kind of an equivalent, right? Like, or not that far above Garrett Cole has a nine and a half strikeout prop. I mean, this is, this is a pretty significant mispricing here. I think I would not be surprised if this true value is maybe 65. I don't think in a large field GPP that the field is going to roster 91% of a pitcher. The way our ownership projection model works, it's algorithmic, right? It, 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 
calculates ownership the way a computer would calculate ownership. And it's basically, this is more representative of how poorly he has mispriced than actually what the real number is here. Um, I think the real number is going to be about 65%, but man, it is, uh, that is a big mispricing. Um, the, the pricing this year just has not been very good on, on either site for baseball. Um, part of the reason why I have experimented lowering men's salary on a lot of these slates, just because it, it seems like they're pulling money out of the hat some nights. So, or pulling salaries out of the hat. So, um, okay. Troubles has a question here. Any profit plan suggestions to stay on track with smaller lobbies like UFC, League of Legends, NFL Showdown, et cetera, where the contest uniques slash availability by stakes aren't well stratified? Uh, better to send in a bullet or two in the large fields instead of maxing small field entries, or is that bankroll slash risk tolerance specific? Yeah. So this is interesting. Um, I do think you have to apply a little bit of your personal, like... The, the more unique lineups you play contest agnostic, the more you are going to spread out your risk and, and get more opportunities to realize some of your EV at once. Now there is, there is sometimes a bit of an, like an upside sacrifice there, where if you are investing some of the available money, you have to play a slate in smaller field, lower dollar contests. That is money that like could have been spent elsewhere. Right. Um, so let's just look at this real quick. I mean, I, I would say, I would say in general, uh, I don't know if NFL is the best example here. I would say it's, this is a hard question to answer. I would say in general, I would do your best to follow the tenets, like the step-by-step walkthrough of entering contests for a given slate. Um, while asking yourself, are these contests that you really want to play? Right. Like I think, you know, League of Legends is an interesting example here where, you know, if your bankroll takes you up all the way to be playing the flagship League of Legends contest, like the $15, you might not be the right candidate to also be playing and maxing out the quarter jukebox and filling those in uniquely. Right. Like it, it, these are, these are almost apples and oranges at these stakes. What I typically do as a general kind of rule of thumb is I kind of figure out what is the lowest total prize pool that I would be willing to play, right? What What is the lowest total prize pool that makes sense for me and eliminating contests that don't really fit into that. So, you know, if I'm playing baseball tonight here, for example, you know, my minimum, I might want a prize pool that has at least, um, and baseball is probably not the best example because it is literally the example that is used, oops, in the original video. But I might want a prize pool that is at least um, $1,000 to first or ten. actually $10,000 to first maybe is actually a little bit of a better example or something like that. And then you can still use the DFS profit plan principles, but select for contests that are all in the same bucket of general, of general prize pools. Um, so the other thing is on smaller sports like League of Legends, tennis, that kind of thing, you're just going to get pushed in the direction of playing the flagship sooner. That's kind of the way it goes. So it, it does depend a little bit on what your personal tolerance is or what you're, you're perfect. You're, you're totally looking to get out of it. So all right. Eamon said, Air Jordan, before you go, please take, please teach us how to take advantage of ownership flaws. 
Yeah, I mean, so our ownership model has come a long way. I will say that. I I feel more confident about just what the ownership projections say by default on any given night than I this time at this point this year than I did at any point last year. Um it's tough to say how to take advantage of it. I think some of this is does take a little bit of like experience and intuition, right? This would be, I mean, I've played baseball DFS for five, six years now. This would be the highest ownership projection I'd ever seen on a pitcher on a slate of this size ever, right? Like there's just kind of a red flag going off for me that I think, you know, um, it just seems too high. I, it's, it's hard for me to say exactly why. I just, I can, I just know that that number is a little bit high. Um, I think and there's there's a couple po- I think there's also a couple biases that you can in general pick up on or or possibly look into when you're looking at ownership. Um, one of those is is recent form, right? Like short term performance. Uh, when Otani was like just running crazy hot earlier this year and had like string of 10, 11, 12, 13 strikeout games in a row, uh, his ownership projections were just coming in, or his actual ownership was just a little bit higher than projected consistently. Uh, after Spencer Strider's like thirteen strikeout game, he was owned more the very next game uh teams that are hitting hot will often be a little bit owned higher than our ownership projections will come in um in terms of how to take advantage of that i think the best thing you can do is just update the ownership projection and don't even stress about being too accurate on what the final number you get here is i would worry about just being directionally correct right as long as you are right that the ownership projection comes in lower than 91 here that's going to pay off when it comes time to build lineups because we're taking into account ownership fade when we build them right so now when we build this, even if his ownership projection is 70 or 40, it would have been better, not his projection, his actual ownership is 70 or 40. You're going to get a better, more strategically aligned set of lineups here than you would have at the 91 ownership projection. So, but that's that's how I would kind of think about that there. Eamon said yesterday Varsha was high owned, but Walker was the play. Yeah, I mean, sometimes those like same team, same same team hitter ownerships having pretty big differences. Um, I think a lot of times is more about the ease of how easy it is to play that player in a given lineup, right? One player might be at a very solid or a positionally scarce position. Another might be at a positionally rich position or one player may just like cost a little bit more. I think most of the time, because our ownership model actually uses real lineup construction to, to generate the ownership projections, we will pick up on that pretty well, right? So if we look, let's see. Let's see if I can find one here. Do we have like a very well-projected team here tonight? We don't have a lot of like teams in elite hitting spots, which is kind of interesting. Um, I guess we will use Toronto here as an example and see if we can kind of see a situation here. Okay, so here's, uh, yeah, I don't even know if this is like a great example, but that's typically what it is. Is like you'll you may sometimes have a situation where one player is projected for a lot more ownership than another, even on the same team, and it's generally because of the way that they fit into other lineup constructions on that particular slate. So. Um, but most of the time we'll pick up on that pretty well. And that will kind of naturally be incorporated into your lineups. Well, based on the ownership fade slider, right? And the example that you're giving here, Varsho and Walker probably have similar upside. And 
we'll generally do a pretty good job of understanding that, hey, there's maybe an ownership leverage opportunity there on Walker if he's lower owned. So let me know if that helps. Um, I also, you know, another thing you can do is kind of look at like a third party here. So one thing that I like to do is if you're trying to get an idea of what are going to be the most popular stacks, I think just taking a look and seeing how Vegas projects these games can kind of help make sure that you're in line with what actually might happen here. So if we go and look at the ownership projections for hit for batters and see what we're getting, right? So, and I just look for similar names, right? So Houston, Texas, Minnesota, maybe Kansas City kind of pop up as the first ones, kind of like as a big three, right? You can check that just against Vegas and see uh, Minnesota, Texas, Houston, all show up as, as kind of high, high high totals per Vegas. What's interesting is that Toronto has a pretty high total and they don't show up very highly on the ownership projections, right? Now that can mean a couple things. That can mean maybe they're just expensive, even relative to their uh, salary, but this doesn't seem like an overly expensive team. I mean, you have an expensive Hernandez and expensive Vlad Guerrero, but there's a lot of ways to stack this team cheaply. This might be a team to me that we are under projecting their ownership projections by a slight bit at the moment. If they are the highest Vegas total team on the night, they don't look overly priced. Uh, that might be a team that maybe deserves a little bit of a bump in ownership as well. So, Cool. All right. I think we will go ahead and cap the stream off there for today. I will be right back again here tomorrow, 2 o'clock Eastern, same time, same place. So enjoy the 10-game slate here tonight. Have a good rest of your Monday, everybody, and I will see you all tomorrow. Take care.